but then again, it's precisely the type of, of work that you did with this paper that, that helps to, to basically really find what is the lineage of ideas and what were the things that were actually being discussed at a time. So that's like, I, I, you know, as, as somebody that, that, that is interested in, in development policy, industrial policy, your, your presentation left me, you know, with my mouth wide open in terms of, of, of where things actually came from. It's never about context being in or out. The question is what the relevant context is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts. Ceteris non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Welcome to Ceteris non paribus, the history of economic thought podcast. I'm Maria Back, and I'm your host for this episode. This episode is a recording of a webinar organized by the YSI INET History of Economic Thought, Economic Development, Economic History, and Latin America Working Groups. Special thanks to Daniel Munavar, who you heard at the beginning. In this webinar, Professor Eric Reinert presents his paper on the 80 economic bestsellers before 1850, a fresh look at the history of economic thought. Check out our website for the abstract, Reinert's slides, and a link to the paper. So here goes. What is your favorite vintage? My favorite is vin vintage. Yes, of uh, economist generations. Oh, I would say everything up to about 1760. <laughs> That's when it started to go down. Oh, <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in your in your presentation you can you can expand on that uh, uh, on, on your preferences. Yeah, well, I'll try to 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 emphasize those that are uh, forgotten and would, who I think is are worthwhile rediscovering. That's a fantastic note to start on, don't you think? <laughs> I like that. Very interesting comment. So I think um, if, if it's okay, I'm going to um, just quickly present Professor Reinhardt and then he can start his uh, very interesting presentation. We are very lucky to have um, Professor Eric Reinhardt with us today. He's a professor of technology, professor of technology governance and development strategies at Tallinn University. And since 2000, he serves as the executive chairman of the Other Canon Foundation, a small center and network for heterodox economics research. So Reinhardt's um, research interests, as some of you already know, in his publications focus around the theory of uneven development and the history of economic thought and policy. So today he's going to be talking about um, his latest research about the economic bestsellers before 1850. So I don't want to talk more than that. I'm going to leave the floor, virtual floor, to Professor Reinhardt. Okay, thank you very much for a kind invitation. It's nice to be uh, with you. Uh, as you see from the screen, this is a, a, a kind of a family, family affair, and it's a long-standing project. It actually started in, in 1974 when I was at Harvard Business School, and my wife, who is a librarian, um, was uh, was working there in the Crest Library, which which uh, stocks uh, economics books from before 1850. So. Uh, an economist uh, by the name of Herbert Foxwell uh, was the biggest collector of economics books ever. And he collected what's now the Goldsmiths Collection at the University of London and, 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 and the Crest Collection at Harvard Business School. So my wife's boss, uh, Ken Carpenter, who is now a gentleman of 85, had put together these economic bestsellers and he had found 40. 
uh, and that interests me, me a lot. And I, 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 you know, for a long time I thought we should update this project. And and uh, now, so many years later, uh, we 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 started on it again and found 80 economic bestsellers before 1850. The criteria for the bestsellers is that the more than 10 editions before 1850, journal articles not included, practical manuals for farmers, merchants, etc., are not included, um, and the list comprises one book printed in the 1400s, four books published in the 1500s, 13 during the 1600s, 46 during the 1700s, and 16 from 1800 to 1848. And if you wonder what the criteria of an economic book is, that is complicated. Because, of course, uh, in the old days, uh, lawyers were talking about economics. So what we have done is, is we, we took the Palgrave Dictionary Economics of 1900. And, and uh, what was the persons that were catalog there as being economists we included as economists you know the the profession has kind of narrowed since 1900 so we, we took a wide uh, a wide definition but still there are you know problems with it. Uh, leaving out the journal articles um, is a problem because then you leave out a lot of what's written by the physiocrats and that's kind of politically incorrect uh, but, uh, and in fact, a couple of days ago, I got an anti-fan mail from a French mathematics professor who, who was a bit upset uh, of, that many of the physicists were, were, were missing. But, um, you know, it, it gets so much more complicated when, when, when uh, uh, you have journal articles. This is complicated enough because uh, in the book trade, there is something called uh, ghosts. And ghosts are books that pretend to have been published, but have really not been published. And, and, and uh, you know, sometimes whether you count them in or not is, 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 uh, uh, will make a difference if there are 10 or not. You know, we, um, I, I've kicked out one the other day because I found out that the translator for Bonnet was only 11 years old when this book was supposed to be published, so that this must be a wrong edition. So this is the kind of detective work we're doing. So the language distribution is that four books were originally printed in Latin, three translated by uh, uh, ancient Greek authors, and one by a German. And strangely enough, the, the, the book written by the German in Latin is also the only book uh, which was published in, in, in Scandinavia, in, in, in Lund, in, in, in Sweden, but it made about 151 editions. Uh, one book was originally published bilingual, Latin and Italian, by, by a financier working in the Vatican. Two books originally published in Dutch. Two books originally published in Spanish. We were really looking for others, uh, and, and we were hoping that Campomanes would make it, but he didn't make it. We have really been looking in the small languages, but uh, I mean, the, the problem uh, with, with Portuguese or Swedish is that uh, they, the market is so small, so they don't make it to, to 10 editions. Seven in German, which won by an Austrian and won by a Swiss. Seven in Italian. 27 entries originally published in England. And one interesting thing is that uh, the American, two of the American authors, Franklin and Hamilton, are the only persons uh, portrayed on US dollar bills who were not presidents, <laughs> so 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 their their fame in a way they got through being authors, and 
and Benjamin Franklin is is the by far the most translated kind of surprising uh, 1125 editions of his way to wealth and if you if you there's a website way to wealth in one word dot uh, dot com i guess it is uh, where, where where you find these these editions it's 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 amazing many of them are small but but um, uh, you know franklin is uh, definitely important and hamilton was uh, the first minister of finance his book was also published very fast and although his book was published in 1791 uh, you find the interesting thing that you know he was published in russian only two three years after adam smith right so so the speed with which certain countries pick up certain ideas is also is also an interesting thing to to read out of this 30 were originally published in French, two by Germans, one by an Italian, uh, and two authors from the Republic and Canton of Geneva. Six authors with more than one book, Xenophon, Huet, Coyer, Mirabeau, Say, and Necker. And here is one important thing, you know, the bestseller of them all with four best-selling books, and there were tens of thousands being published. Uh, the great anti-physiocrat he is the best-selling book and you he had four best-selling books and you you rarely find anything about him in the history of economic thought so so what comes out clearly is that the role of physiocracy in the history of economic thought is greatly exaggerated and physiocracy uh, you know it, it contributed to the shortage of bread in paris which led to the french revolution and it was attempted only in two uh, states, in, in, in Tuscany and in Baden-Baden, and it utterly failed. So, so um, th there is something here with the very foundation of the history of economic thought that kind of misleads us. So among the first um, 10 best-selling books, uh, I would like to uh, talk a little bit about number five and number nine, but let's first, let me first say that uh, Martin Luther's uh, on usury or on trade and usury from 1524 uh, was actually the first book which was first printed it was first printed i mean aristotle and xenophon were f first in in manuscripts right but the, we're looking here at printed editions we're not we're, we're not considering the manuscripts of course so giovanni botero three books on the causes and greatness of cities venice 1591 um, and notice here, you know, Francis Bacon and Essay on Innovation. This is the time where where um, innovations start coming into the picture. You know, in around 1250, there was a gentleman by the uh, by the name of Roger Bacon who was arrested in Oxford for suspicious innovations. And innovations was heresy that was meant going outside the Bible and Aristotle to seek for new knowledge. And 1605, um, uh, 1625, you have you have Francis Bacon writing an essay on innovations. So so innovations went from um, being heresy to being the center of what one wanted. Some somewhere between 1250 and and, and 1625, and that was of course the Renaissance, right? And 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 here the Italian cities states uh, played an important role. And then I'll get to talk about the uh, second love. Giovanni Botero, 
if any of you happen to be around northern Italy on the 8th of October, which is a Sunday, uh, there is a commemoration because it's 400 years since he passed away. Um, Botero was a Jesuit who refused to do missionary work among Protestants. So as a punishment, they sent him to Rome to be in charge of the prohibited books, the index of prohibited books. And of course, being with that job, he had to read a lot, but and he also read things that that were later prohibited. So he got an enormous amount of of uh, of, of, of information. And his other book is uh, called the Relazione Universale, which is really a book on on ethnography and and, and anthropology and, and and geography, which of course is not on this list. But it's very interesting because this is. Europe before it became ethnocentric. So, so Botero would write about all the strange cultures or, or, or all the different cultures on the planet, you know, the Sami in northern Scandinavia, and he would he would write admiring like, that these people have the fastest transportation uh, anywhere, which is a reindeer sleigh, uh, and, and, and that they build boats without nails and things like that. So, so this is uh, something happened around 1770 uh, when European became became ethnocentric. You know, the Jesuits were were were, were sent out. They were sent out of China. They were sent out of Latin America because, in a way, they were they, let's say they were in the way of uh, in, of capitalism. They identified with the uh, with, with with the natives, with the Aboriginals, and and. So it's a, it's uh, he's an interesting person also because he he's uh, so friendly to all cultures all, all 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 creations of man. So just to give you an idea of his editions, Rome you have the greatness of cities. Then uh, another edition in 1888, uh, and then the real first edition with reason of state. Also, which also includes the grandezza. So this is also uh, this is also political science. Uh, Ferrara, Ferrara, Rome, Madrid. This is Spanish translation in 1593. Uh, two in Milan, then Turin, Milan, Venice, Pavia, Venice, and then Paris, Barcelona, and then come the first editions in Germany. And in Germany, he's translated into Latin. It's so early that that the that the uh, academic language was still only only Latin while Botero wrote in in, uh, in, in vernacular in Italian um, and you have a new Spanish edition London only with the greatness of cities Burgos you know it, it, it goes on uh, and here you say you see that towards the end of the 1600s, it kind of tapers out, and then we have two editions in in, in, in the 19th century, and in and in um, in, in Frankfurt in uh, in 1657 you have you have the German edition. So I knew of Botero as an economist, but then I visited the library of um, um, Weit von Seckendorf, who was the librarian in Gotha in Germany. Uh, until uh, 1665, and I found 30 different editions of Botero in in Seckendorf's library, 
uh, and it was very obvious that he also had influenced second wave. So 30 different editions before 1665 in a German library. Uh, that was like, extraordinary. Fortunately, the library had been catalogued, so it hadn't been raided because uh, people didn't really know what, what was there because in, in East Germany they tended to sell off valuable books. So, uh, I mean, the number of editions here, while books were still very rare and very expensive, is is uh, um, is, is amazing. So, what comes out of Botero's logic is the important the link between economic structure and population carrying capacity um, you know hunting and gathering society there will be one to two persons per square kilometer an agricultural society 40 persons you know when eritrea was doing okay until they were 40 when they came up to 50 person per square kilometer they got a problem and then uh, of course the people from eritrea and other places can go to holland where there are 400 persons per square kilometer, but because the economic structure is different, you know, nobody would say that Holland is, is overpopulated, although it's densely populated. And this is, this is actually what Botero is trying to explain. What is it about these cities that make them so wealthy? If you look at a map of Europe, there were only a few places where there was generalized wealth, as it was Florence, it was Venice, it was uh, Amsterdam, perhaps Genoa. Uh, and he, he explains why. And he says, well, only nations with a large manufacturing sector, this is his logic, uh, are able to feed a large population. And there's also something which people noticed, that this is a, a pamphlet in England in 1640, saying, well, why is it that only countries that specialize in agriculture have famines? Nations that plow the sea are rich and those who plow the earth are, 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 are not. So in 1613, there's a book which adds theory to Botero. And, and uh, Antonio Serra, he, his book is, was printed in, uh, until 183, there was only this edition. And I think there are about six copies on existing. But uh, the, the, it's in, the title is interesting. Brief treatise on the causes would that may make kingdoms abound with gold and silver also where there are no mines right and the thing was uh, gold was flooding in from um, central america and from south america to spain but all that gold ended up it left spain and it ended up in places like venice and amsterdam and this is what he's trying to explain and, and he explains it by, you know, two dichotomies, uh, financial economy versus production economy. You know, people have done that since, since uh, the Bible. Uh, but he, add, he added the contrast between increasing returns and diminishing returns. And Seda building on, on Botero really creates virtues and especially virtuous circles in uh, on the basis of manufacturing. And it is that um, when production increases in manufacturing, costs will go down. And because costs will go down, they will attract even more customers. And because they attract even more customers, costs go down and they can set up prices and they can set up wages, but they still attract more customers, etc., etc. And then he says, this would never happen in the countryside. This never happens 
where nature is a force of production. It never happens in mining, it never happens in agriculture, it never happens in fishing. So, Serra is, according to Schumpeter, and I think Schumpeter is really right, the first to produce a scientific treatise of economics. And, and, and Schumpeter says that, that Serra uh, says that, you know, don't worry about the financial economy. If, if the real economy is working well, you know, the financial economy will take care of itself. Uh, you know, you, 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 you will have money to import it, etc., etc. So, increasing versus diminishing return was first defined by, uh, by, by setup. But it underlies the, 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 the work of, of, of Botero also. And also with Botero, it is, as these people were saying, if you want to know the wealth of a city, go into the city and count the number of professions. The larger the number of professions, the richer the city. And this, in a sense, works today. If you if you compare Kampala with with Manhattan, you know I think this this still works. And you can look at, for instance, in today's context, manufacturing versus extraction of energy. Uh, solar panels are, is manufacturing under increasing increasing returns. Oil is extraction of energy and a diminishing returns. So it's, you can also use these for 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 modern. Um, for modern problems. And of course, the problem was that increasing returns was kicked out of economics in the 1930s. It was very important with Alfred Marshall in, in 1890, but then it was kicked out of economics in the 1930 because it was not compatible with equilibrium. In my view, you know, they should have kicked out equilibrium because it was not compatible with increasing returns. And, and, and I think this we're suffering from. And, and, and this was, of course, re, uh, with the Marshall Plan after World War II, this was reinvented. And perhaps it's time to invent it again. Here is um, Seckendorf's, I mean, the, the, the guy who had the 30 different editions of Botero, right? Um, his book uh, uh, came in about uh, 12 editions, and it stayed in print for more than 100 years. It, it's interesting, with German books tend to stay in print for a long time. In, in, in some English books, uh, you have 10 editions, and after 15 years, they're gone. So here is um, the German Principality, um, the fifth edition, now with a new edition, Zugabe. And this is when Seckendorf had gone with his ruler, Ernest the Pious and Stefan they went to Holland and they saw all the wealth of Holland and they came back and they said, well, we have to emulate the economic structure of Holland. So the, the word, a very important word here is emulate. Uh, emulation, of course, is attempting to copy someone with the intention of approving upon it, right? So, so, so uh, sport is all emulation. Who can throw the discus the furthest? Who can run the, run the fastest? And this was the name of the game. And if we go back to economic historian Werner Sombart, he explains this competition between the emulation between the small nation states as being actually being a very important reason for why Europe uh, surpassed uh, China. You know, China was uh, was huge. Uh, and more advanced, technically more advanced uh, continent than Europe, but it was centralized, and uh, the ruler would, you know, get all the books to his library, but he would burn the ones he didn't like. 
whereas in 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 uh, in Europe you had uh, competing uh, nation state with competing views. So so it was um, there was a diversity of opinions existing, so that different strategies could be compared, and 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 you could learn. Right, and I think in a, in a way this is a problem with the European Union today. Right, it, it, it's a lack of lack of diversity of, of approaches i think so if we go to number numbers uh, 11 on thomas munn joshua child you have pufendorf uh, temple observations on the united provinces williams petty's political ar arithmetic uh, hernick bochilbert carry law and vauban vauban was was a military strategist who, 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 who wrote on monetary issues and became very unpopular. But I'm going to focus on two here. And um, one is, is, is Hönnick, Austria above all if she only wants to. Um, this was a book which uh, was published early in 1684. And we remember that 1683 was the siege of Vienna. And early in the year after, he comes this guy with a formula for um, how to make Austria rich. And it's he is appealing to the Rhine, I mean, the, the, the Germany on the Rhine, which was fighting against France. It's very anti-French. The French had taken uh, Strasbourg a bit, you know, not that many years ago. Um, and, and, and it reflects a period when when you know there was still considerable uh, disagreement of, of, among european states and perhaps the most interesting thing with with Hönig is his um uh, uh, five rules of how a country should get rich and in 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 the back of my book how rich countries got rich and why poor countries stay poor i i have uh, Hönig's rules and uh, exactly 100 years after this, in 1784, there was a new edition. There have been 12, 13 editions in between, where um, Hönig, um, uh, well, somebody's commenting on Hönig and say, how, look how wealthy we have become uh, because we followed Mr. Hönig's advice. So this was, you know, uh, extremely successful. N just like Seckendorf, not translated. Right. So John Kerry's uh, an essay on the state of England is is extremely uh, it's an extremely interesting book because he was a slim volume in English, very much against the Pope and and against uh, Catholicism which then a few years later becomes a thick th three thick volumes in italian very against england and very much in favor of the pope then it, it you have two slim volumes in french and then it goes to a small volume in germany so the i think it's important to understand that translation was very far much further from literal translation that we um, that that we would think it's actually the idea that England needs manufacturing is 
uh, in, in the English context is translated to the Italian context, where the strategy is the same, but the context is completely different. So, so the whole book was rewritten, but it's, it's being published as John Kerry's. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's very influential also in Italy. So, so the idea of taking a, a, nas a national strategy and, and, and plant it in a different context was, was uh, useful. And it's interesting how the word planting was used. It was used, of course, to bring in new plants, but also planting, you were planting new manufacturers. So the planting of manufacturers and the planting of plants were, they used the same word. This is, you know, my, my son grew up between these books and, and he, he, uh, he looked at this, how this thin volume could be these three thick volumes in Italian and, and, and he, this is a, 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 what once uh, was his thesis translating empire emulation and the origins of political economy Harvard University Press and and this is uh, that story of of how to take ideas in one context and translate them into others so um, we have um, uh, Mandeville here very important book trying to uh, to draw the limits between usual greed and 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 uh, useful greed and 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 uh, destructive greed um, very interesting the great mirror of folly amsterdam 1720 on the financial crisis ustaris uh, the, the the spanish uh, mercantilist who was published all over he was published in french in hamburg very often Books were published uh, in other languages than the language of the place. So you have uh, you, you have a mixture. You, you know, books appear in places where where in in different languages than the the language of the place they're published. But I would like to to draw your attention to Joshua G, the trade and navigation of Great Britain considered, 1729. Joshua G. Uh, is one of the um, one of the economists who one of the few here who, who who doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. You know he is virtually forgotten, but he was um, he, he was you know there were many translations. This is a, 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 an engram comparing Thomas Munn who I think if we know of one mercantilist, it's Thomas Munn, one English mercantilist. But you see that Joshua G for a long time was much more popular than, uh, than, than Munn. And especially in periods when free trade uh, was unpopular. Uh, let's say that you know, after 1776 is it's a period when, when, when free trade became in vogue, but after the disasters in France, after the Napoleonic War, um, Friedrich Liszt changes his mind, and 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 the, uh, the, the the Swiss economist Sismondi very importantly changes his mind on on uh, uh, on free trade. He he understands that in the in some contexts it's very it's very difficult, it's, it's very counterproductive. And you see here in this period when people rediscover the problems of free trade, well, 
Joshua G uh, grows again. And, and here is an interesting um, uh, quote from him. Um, and I think this is how England, well, this is economists when they were still kind of honest. And it's not as racist as it looks. He talks about Negroes, but they did exactly the same thing to Ireland, which is, um, uh, so, so it was to colonies in general. That all Negroes shall be prohibited from weaving either linen or woolen, or, or, or spinning or combing of wool, or working at any manufacture of iron, further than making it into pig or buy iron. They also be, should also be prohibited from manufacturing of hats, stockings, leather, and any kind. Indeed, if they set up manufacturers, and the government afterwards shall be under necessity of stopping their progress. We may, it may we may not expect that it will be done with the same ease that now it may. And 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 that sounds uh, pretty violent. But if 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 we if we look at what was said in the English Parliament with with when when the American colonies really got going in manufacturing after the Napoleonic War. You know, we, ha we have a gentleman in the House of Commons who says that, well, the English, the American manufacturing industry must be killed in its cradle. So, so you know, they, they, they were much more honest than they were. Uh, you know, it's, we got into to, to the kind of hypocrisy that uh, international trade should always be in the benefit of everyone. And G is honest, and he was very popular. Um, at least 20 editions. English editions were published in London. And interesting, the Scots picked him up, of course, and the Irish. Several French translations. It was published in London, Amsterdam, and Geneva. Published in Dutch, in Spanish, and in German in Copenhagen. Which may be a fake. It may actually have been in Germany, but they didn't want to admit it, so they put Copenhagen. So, so. This is an interesting example of an economist uh, who has been, was obviously very important, uh, very influential, much more influential, you know, many more editions than David Ricardo, for instance, but of course Ricardo was much later, but still, you know, he, he, he built up editions much faster than Ricardo did uh, 90 years later, or 90, uh, about 90 years later. You know, the, this is of course, this year is of course the, the 200th anniversary of Ricardo's trade theory. So, what I'm saying is that there, there was a kind of technology policy behind colonialism. And of course, the same thing, these same prohibitions were valid for the United States. The United States could produce tar and masts for uh, timber for masts, but not much more. So, what happened in the United States in 1776 was, in many ways, in many ways, a reaction to 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 this. We we hear about the Tea Party and the tax and the taxation, but we don't often hear about um, about the trade policy. But reading um, reading Alexander Hamilton, I would recommend you to do that. Report on the manufacture, 1791. You know, you ask you, will, you can ask Mr. Hamilton, well, why do you think the United States needs a manufacturing sector? And he comes. He has a list of answers: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's uh, it's a it's a very sharp publication, and, and it's worth reading. So what I'm attempting to say is that 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 there is um, um, a cyclical movement in economic theory, uh, physiocracy, um, peaks uh, in 1760s, 
dies with the French Revolution, dies 1789, you know, physiocracy, the rule of nature. Classical economics, Ricardo, 1817, it dies uh, in, in, in 1848, uh, essentially with the, uh, with, the, um, uh, with, with the revolution in 1848, and it's completely dead in 1895, you know. People saying, you know, Ricardo is the root of all evils, both right and left. Uh, neoclassical synthesis, Samuelson, 1948, peaks in 2000, and now I'm very optimistic. <laughs> I think uh, we, it's 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 uh, dying now. I did another opa, engram on on the invisible hand, and and uh, of course Adam Smith uh, got the idea of an invisible hand. Uh, he uses it first in, in 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 a little work he does, which is normally excluded from his collected works on on um, um, on, on, on um, uh, the planets and astronomy. But you see, um, invisible hand is popular, um, and but it 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 popula uh, popularity diminishes between 1850, uh, a little lag from 1848. But you see how incredibly fast it grows after 1950. So, so the invisible hand is the metaphor which accompanied the Cold War. And and if you look at if if you do a, uh, an engram on David Ricardo, you see there is a tremendous bump of publications of Ricardo around 1950 with with factor price equalization and and these arguments that proved uh, that market was superior to, 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 to planning. So a bit optimistic that, that perhaps it's, it's peaking, but, but I may be too optimistic. So I think if we look at these shifts, um, 1848 was an important shift. Three books, uh, Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. We know Marx was so radical he had to flee to England. Bruno Hildebrandt, Economics of the Present and the Future. Uh, uh, Hildebrandt was so conservative that in uh, 1851 he had to flee to Switzerland. Um, and John Stuart Mill, Principles of Political Economy, where, where actually the English liberalists recant on free trade. You know, here, John Stuart Mill says, understands that nations need what he called infant industry protection for, for development. So in terms of, of, of trade policy, um, I think it's interesting to observe that uh, in the United States now, you know, both Trump and Sanders agreed that free trade was no longer in the interest of, of, of the United States. Uh, so perhaps we, we now have a similar, um, a similar situation. So, I'll leave it there and and uh, be pleased to take any questions or comments or whatever. You, you you mentioned the idea of uneven development. Yeah, is that something that permeated throughout all the text that you've covered? Um, to... Yes, absolutely. It what they were trying to explain was development. It came in different words. It came in the form of in German, the form of Glückseligkeit, of, of happiness, and Muratori, an Italian uh, author in, 
1749, uh, 1750, put it in the terms of felicita publica, public happiness. So, so uh, you know, a lot of people were living on subsistence level, and you know, people were looking uh, as Africans today look to Europe and say, you know, why why are they so rich? And they, you know, from Botero onwards, it was it it was clear that it was the economic structure that. Um, that, that mattered. I didn't say that Botero, he pops up, but he's not quoted. You know, in 1722-23, there were two Englishmen, Misselden and Malines, who were arguing about uh, wealth and development, and, and, and Mr. Uh, Misselden says to Mr. Malines, well, you, you're an idiot, you don't see the difference between a, a heap of logs and a house. And this was very much Botero. You know, you, you, the, 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 there is a piece of marble there, and then somebody makes the Pietà statue out of it, and the, the value added is, 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 well, the value added is development. And, and the first Swedish economist, Anders Berg, he was the first economist to have a professorship outside Germany in the 1740s. He says, as we all know, the real gold mines are manufacturing. And, you know, I read him. A long time ago, I said, "How could he say? As we all know, where, the, where does that come from?" Right, <laughs> and that's potato. So, so uh, it's it's interesting. And Sir Walter Raleigh, if you, you know, the the, the, the pirate economist, uh, he, he seemingly what's the last name? Sorry, uh, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, he he uh, is known as a almost like a pirate, but he was an influential. Um, uh, writer, and he also copies uh, Botero. So I have a, a question here from Otto. Yes, so Otto is asking which ones of the Italian mercantilists were the most famous before 1834. This is because I found that they influenced one of the most important Latin American independence intellectuals, such as Jose Cicilio del Val. The vice president of the Central American Federation. Hola, Otto. <laughs> ¿Cómo estás? There were some very influential Italians, Veri, Galliani, uh, and, and, and others also. And it's interesting that Schumpeter has a lot of time for these, in his history of economic thought, he has a lot of time for these Italians. He said if they hadn't been so busy about solving practical problems, they would have been much better economists than Adam Smith. You know? he's, not a, he's not a big fan of A. Smith, as he calls them. And, and um, Galliani, who wrote in, 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 in French, it was from Naples. He his uh, commerce on his book on the commerce of, of, of grain, which we have now finally translated to English but not published. Very important anti-physiocrat. Uh, he emphasizes the role of of, of manufacturing. Pietro Pietro Verri uh, was also very important. Uh, and you have Cesare Beccaria uh, in, in in Milan. A couple of them in Milan and a couple of them in Naples, and 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 they they were extremely influential are and and are also translated. And I'm not surprised that you you'll find these Italians in 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 Central America. Gracias, gracias. Bueno, un placer. <laughs> Great. Do you have any more questions? Yes, I think I do. Uh, my name is Abdallah Osman. Uh, my question is. A little bit out of topic, but within the the economic spectrum. 
since you said that uh, the increasing returns were abandoned after the 19th after the 1930s uh, because of it wasn't compatible with equilibrium do you think the current uh, macroeconomic crisis we have uh, and the low uh, low inflation expected i mean the, the low inflation that the Fed, federal reserve are struggling with now do you think that it's because the philip the philip curve which basically based on a and they expect that the inflation will come up. Do you think the abandoning of the increasing return has anything to do with the current uh, macroeconomic crisis? Well, I think it has more to do with the theoretical crisis than, but, but, but you know, I see a lot of the crisis now as being, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, says law versus underconsumption, right? If you believe in says law that that, that uh, supply creates its own demand, uh, you know, you get today's economic theory. If you go to Hobson from the 1880s and onwards, and also Aftalion and many French economists, you know, they, they would say that uh, that capitalism has has a, uh, an in, built-in problem of, of underconsumption. And I think this is, uh, this is what we're seeing. But I think it, it, the increasing returns is theoretically, Im, Im, theoretically important. And think of, David Ricardo's labor theory of value, right? You know, Marx used la uh, Ricardo's labor theory of, of value and, uh, you know, didn't consider increasing returns. He had diminishing returns. And, and the same uh, labor theory of value you find in, in Ricardo's trade theory, of course, right? And modern elites, of course, hates uh, Ricardo's labor theory of value when it's found in Marx because it, it goes against the capitalist, but the same elites tend to love the labor theory of value uh, when it is in, in, in Ricardo's trade theory, because Ricardo's trade theory then proves that uh, there is no reason for, for uh, poor countries to go into manufacturing and to go into areas with increasing returns and imperfect competition. So, so there is this, uh, this assumption juggling in economics, what looks like a very scientific uh, uh, structure, in my view, is, a, is, 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 is kind of put together, juggling assumptions that we, 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 we would like to have the labor theory of value in, 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 I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, I'm saying it's on vested interests, which uh, we, we don't want the labor theory of value in, uh, in, 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 um, uh, in Marx, but we want it in, 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 in trade theory. And I think this, this feeds into the, the lack of understand uh, of increasing returns, of course, would also could also explain why why costs are are not uh, going up, right? Uh, actually, so so you, you have a point there that that uh, the 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 an increasing returns tend to go with 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 the um, increased volume of production, something called Fedon's law. So if we are in a period with technological uh, change uh, as a result of increasing returns and technological change, then uh, then you would expect little inflation. And you know the way to solve any inflation problem, of course, to give people higher wages. But that's that's not uh, modern anymore. Let's say. So, so yes, yeah. So th th it, it's clearly it it is related. I think it was Kenneth Arrow who said that increasing returns functions like an underground river in economics. It comes to the surface every now and then. Um, and, and I think it is it, it it is crucial. You know, there is a 
qualitative difference between a shoeshine boy, boy in Lima, Peru, and Bill Gates. And, and, and increasing returns is, is, is one important difference. I think Schumpeter is a key person. You know, he, I, was, I was fortunate enough that and I attended a, a class of history of economic thought at, at, at Harvard. The teacher was Schumpeter's best friend, a guy called Arthur Smithis from Tasmania. And he turned a whole class of history of economic thought into a class of uh, Schumpeterian economics. And, 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 and I, I, I was sold. I think, you know, Schumpeter is the one we should work for. And, and, and I think we don't see how much Schumpeter bridges the left and right. You know, Schumpeter himself says people don't see uh, that uh, my theory has a lot of in common with Marx because both Marx and I see capitalism as uh, a system developing internally from technological change. So, so, so you have this guy from the right and this guy from the left who, who essentially agree. So, so I think um, I think we should we, we should we should dig into to more into Schumpeter. I think yeah, that's uh, you know I've worked in business for many years and I've worked in in, in developing countries for many years and and, and I found that you know, I, I I always turn back to Schumpeter. And next week we're publishing for the first time. Um, uh, Schumpeter's theory of economic development in Norwegian, which comes after Ukrainian and a lot of other languages, but I think this is something that should be translated. Yeah, that's fantastic. You told me about that a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was rather impressed. I'm I'm Swedish, so I, when I hear that things are being published in Scandinavian language, I'm always feel very nationalistic. <laughs> yeah, well, um, he was he was published in Swedish uh, for a long time, and 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 there's some. There, 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 there's some very interesting Swedish economists. They didn't unfortunately make it to the bestseller list. There's a guy called Poolhem who has exactly the same point about increasing and diminishing returns. And he says in the early 1700s that, you know, even if we in Sweden make a living from, from minerals, we must, we must go into manufacturing because the, the mines will continuously yield less and less. So we'll get poorer and poorer if we don't get into manufacturing. So you had, uh, you know, it's, it's, Swedish economic thought was 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 incredibly advanced, and and they picked up from Seda. You know, I actually checked that that there were at least four copies of 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 of, um, of, of, of uh, uh, Botero. I mean, of Botero's book in in in, in Uppsala uh, when when Anders Berg was writing in the early 1740s. So so he had access to. To, 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 to Botero. So probably also in Sweden he was he was read. Well we know he was read, but probably also Beck took from him. Oh fantastic. So I have another question here from Pedro. Uh, Schumpeter Schumpeter's theoretical development is not that different from the marginal method as far as I can see. He's much closer to Walrus than to Marx, at least how I read him. Could you comment on that? Well I at, at one point I think I wrote that Schumpeter was uh, schizophrenic because because you know Schumpeter comes from the German historical school, school tradition um, but then he falls in love with the uh, absolutely correct with 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 Valdra and 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 and, and the equilibrium uh, process so so you know Schumpeter has this whole extremely complicated uh, world view. Actually, 
in the second in the English tradition in translation of his theory of economic development he kicked out the last chapter which was called the economy as a whole which probably because it was he thought it was too sociological or, or, or too far from modern economics or whatever this was in the early 30s so 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 Schumpeter admires Valdra but it's it but but he wants let's say he has this complicated economy like an oxen and he wants to boil that oxen down to a bouillon cube uh, in in the Valdrasian system and and he didn't see that it didn't work right uh, so so uh, you're absolutely right his his admiration for Valera is is clearly there but it it doesn't jive with his own story you know uh, look at his two thick volume business cycles you know he, he his worldview is very complex but but he would love to reduce it to 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 to, to mathematics but his very first book i think he's Schumpeter is uh, Wesent uh, und Haupteinhalt, you know, the, the nature of economics, which was written when he was about 26. Uh, he, he tries to solve the Methodenstreit uh, between the Germans and the Austrians, and he said, he essentially says that we shouldn't fight about methods, we should ask a question, and then we should go into a theory at the level of abstraction where you're likely to find an answer, right? So, so if you want to find an answer on 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 uneven development, you know, don't use Ricardo's labor theory of value, where one hour in this one labor hour in the Stone Age equals one labor hour in Silicon Valley. You know, that's that that's uh, that's too abstract. So, and and Schumpeter also says we we you know we 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 have to decide whether we want uh, accurate theories uh, or useful ones. You know, he's just this trade-off between accuracy uh, and, and and relevance you know I think Amatya said so, uh, said something similar you know you, you have to choose whether you want you want to be accurately wrong or approximately correct and and, and Schumpeter loved Valdra uh, for being accurately wrong <laughs> but, but but in a sense he himself had a preference for 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 being approximately correct, but but uh, he he was really a bit schizophrenic. Absolutely, he thought that mathematics would solve all the problems, and and uh, I think uh, probably uh, during World War Two he understood that he couldn't. But I I can't say the timing, but there is a definite conflict there in him, and I've called him schizophrenic. I had a bit of a comment, and I'm not sure if it's relevant, but I was reading the list, and 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 of course you highlight and, and you've mentioned this in your presentation too that you highlight that you've brought in books that some that are surprises to some people i wonder if if it's surprising to you that there are mostly european books and european authors um maybe it's the early date that mean means that there are no non-european authors really i was wondering whether you could comment on that well and, and of course they were not printed in you know the, the, the for a long time, non-European books tended to be in in, um, in 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 manuscripts, and and of course there is a very early Arab uh, economist Ibn Khaldun, who 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 um, saw the cycles 
uh, economic cycles very well and, and is an extremely interesting economist. Um, but I haven't managed to trace down that, that many additions. Um, so that, that, is, that is definitely a problem. You know, we managed to reach out to the smaller periphery of Europe, but we haven't managed to reach out beyond beyond Europe very much. I could say the first economics books that was published in India and, and in Latin America, in several places, was James uh, James Mill, John Stuart Mill's father. Um, he he was he was the first who was uh, published uh, outside Europe, uh, and of course also uh, also Benjamin Franklin. You know, if you uh, Benjamin Franklin, who in a, in a sense uh, established the ethics of of of, of capitalism, um, much by much like a gentleman Alberti had had done in. In, in Florence a few hundred years uh, earlier, but uh, well, the problem is that the li the literacy rate in China was uh, very much lower than in Europe at the time. So, so, so it becomes rather eth ethnocentric in a sense. And perhaps we should uh, we should get somebody who who who. who Knows Arabic and and we could start chasing for Ibn Khaldun because he he would be a, he would definitely be a candidate in my view and he was also translated of course. Would you like to add something, Professor Einar? Well, I would just uh, thank you all for participating and 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 for, for for the interest. I think you know try to leave through the list and see what's what's uh, interesting and what what um, uh, translations patterns are interesting. You know they're 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 I think there's raw material for for a lot of, of uh, papers or even theses uh, in this. So so I, I think it's it's fertile ground, and I think any one important thing is to see the cyclicality of it. That 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 you know the invisible hand, um, the, the popularity of the invisible hand uh, goes up and down, and and. Uh, very, very often you find that, that there are crises which brings down the role of the invisible hand and and uh, uh, some of us uh, thought that uh, the financial crisis would do that but it, but uh, it hasn't uh, it hasn't done so so far so so but the role of manufacturing um, I, I think this is something that should come back I just received a paper from Jomo in in Malaysia today who 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 the ex uh, Vice Secretary General of the United Nations, who who traces how um, um, Africa has been deindustrialized, even Africa. You know, Africa never had a lot of industry, but but it's it's decreasing rapidly. So I think one fashionable thing would be to look at would would, would be fashionable to look at economic structure. And here we have, of course, uh, a completely new element with all the service industries. And some of them behave like like manufacturing and 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 others don't so so i hope you can look at this as an a fruitful research field thank you for attending everyone i know i think thank you for your presentation very clear and insightful and and very interesting and i and i agree i think uh, it's a beginning of, of lots of different research projects <laughs>